For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. In 1968, a group of artists and their families created an independent community in the desert south of Oracle. Author Paul Gold talks about this unique slice of local history and his book, Bend in the Wash, the Rancho Linda Vista Artist Community. Understanding the effects of gamma rays, not just on marigolds, but across the universe from a telescope in the Santa Rita Mountains. And essayist Chris DeShield considers the many paradoxes of the short film masterpiece, La Jetée. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Sometimes, the search for artistic freedom and inspiration can lead you to the metaphorical middle of nowhere. That's what happened to a group of artists and their families in 1968. And what they built together out of nothing still remains, providing inspiration for countless others who connect with their art. One example is author Paul Gold, who after purchasing a single painting, spent 15 years researching for his book, Bend in the Wash, the Rancho Linda Vista Artist Community. Chris McGrew died in 1999, and there was a retrospective that was held in 2000, right in the beginning of the year at University of Arizona Art Museum, and also Davis Dominguez held one. And I ended up picking out one that wasn't shown, wasn't framed, and bought it. It was an impulse buy right on the spot. It's a full sheet watercolor. It's sheets generally 22 by 28 and it's one of his great abstract landscapes of the oracle desert and the hillsides and the view of push ridge and san diego peak and those mountains in the catalinas um, that you can see from a western and northern exposure and it, it's still a really important piece to me because it, it started this Well, either by design or by chance, the section on McGrew really occupies the center of the book in a way that is exemplary of how he was the center of the community, it seems like. Um, How did Bruce McGrew come to that place to be at the center of the Rancho Linda Vista community? The real founder of the place was Charles Littler, but it really was a group activity. McGrew in some ways, was kind of the big daddy, I think, of the art scene there. It was really a a communal effort. I say that, but the place was never a commune in the strictest sense. But he was one of the the 10 families that pitched in the money, the down payment. They just wanted to live in a beautiful place outside of the city. He was already a U of A uh, art professor, and so he was willing to do the, whatever, 45-minute commute, probably an hour down to the city a few days a week when he taught. And I think this was just going to be a place where all these people who kind of had the artistic ethos in common could do their own thing. You mentioned a commonality there about artistic drive being shared among the, uh, the major participants in founding the community. But what other commonalities can you cite? What, what do you think are some of the threads that run through the life stories of the members of these 10 families? Several of them were University of Arizona art professors, and several of them came from Wichita. 
and knew each other that way. And some of the artists who were, had the Wichita connection who never lived at Rancho Linda Vista did come and visit and had influence on them. They were not all artists. They were teachers. Within a few years, there was a psychiatrist there that lived in the lodge for many, many years until recently. And everybody does something there. And everybody has an appreciation. There are people that might tell you, I'm not a visual artist, but they, they're writers or they threw pots or they made shoes or they, they did something. So I think it was um, being in a, in a beautiful desert setting and being in a place that's out of town where uh, they could have a, a common interest. If we look ahead a couple of years after that 1968 founding, what kind of effect was living there having? So hundreds of these experimental communities sprang up right after the summer of love, 67, 68, into the 70s. And there's a lot of books written on these. A lot of them failed. A lot of them were based on sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Busloads of hippies showing up. Um, Pretty wild times. But things settled down after a few years. The people like McGrew and Jim Davis and you know some of the principal characters that were well they were art professors um, they were kind of it's kind of funny they're living out there but they were also kind of establishment because they would also go down to their jobs in the city and so I think the place ended up um, hanging together in those years Rancho Linda Vista sits on half of a quarter section little more than that. That's 80 acres. And it's on about 88 acres. And the place has stayed populated with people um, probably between 20 and 30, maybe a little more, for over 50 years. There's about 20, 25 buildings on it. They're not all places where people live, um, but that's been pretty much the population and it still is today. Some of these people were coming there with spouses and were starting their own young families. Some children were born on the premises. So what did you find out from interviewing some of the people who grew up in Rancho Linda Vista? Input was varied. Most of them, I think, really enjoyed the sort of nonconformist approach to being there. Some of them commented on, geez, there were a lot of naked people running around at the pool There were a lot of parties. It was kind of loose. A lot of the marriages broke up in the first year or two. So there was some of that. The kids, I think, largely enjoyed being there. And I think it's the reason why it's in its third generation now. So you've got the the kids of the kids that are living there now. And I think they spoke mostly enthusiastically about the place and the upbringing they had because it was so unusual. So, Paul, what would you like for people to know about Charles Littler? Well, Charles Littler was recognized as the official founder of the place, but again, it was really a group effort. But he himself, coming from New York, um, he had been the secretary to Hans Hoffman's studio, a very famous um, abstract expressionist painter. He had gotten a following himself and gotten an offer from a pretty famous studio, though, to carry his work. And somehow, at the height of it all, true to himself, just when he was about to run smack into conventional success, he moved out to Arizona. Um, he started out as a, as a university professor, but his 
approach to painting, he stopped. He stopped conventional art, visual art altogether. He became really almost like a performance artist. And he was kind of a guru of the place that people would seek out. Like a lot of people there, his marriage broke up, but he wound up um, remarrying. He's really the most unconventional kind of the rebel of the place. That's how I see it. So before we move on to talk about Fox McGrew a little bit, what would you say about the level of male energy that permeated Rancho Linda Vista during that that peak time period? I think it was a pretty alpha male type place. I mean, five of the six people that I profiled are male. And the real truth is in the foreword that Andy Rush wrote, one of the principles about that Rancho and Vista held together because of the female people living there. Um, but it was largely, uh, to me, the, the, the way life was lived there, a male environment. So what do you think would keep an artist with a personality as strong and a vision as clear as Fox McGrew engaged in the community up to this day? She is a very unusual person. She knows who she is. She was aware of the things going on around her, and I think she accepted a lot, and she's not a doormat. She never was or will be, and I think that she saw clearly that some of this behavior was, well, it's kind of the way men and women interacted 50-plus years ago, perhaps, And but I think that it's testament to her uh, stamina and her her attitude of you go forward, you do your thing. She accepted her role as a mother. She accepted her role as uh, participating on the ranch uh, with other people. She was also an artist. But to me, her artistic capability and her uh, freedom came forward years later, much more. Over the 15 years that you spent researching and writing this book, how did your opinion or your ideas about what life was like at Rancho Linda Vista change? Writing this book was a lot of discovery. I didn't really have a preconceived notion. I thought in the beginning it was going to be about one artist, and then it was going to be about many artists. I never tried to control it to narrative history, and it shored up by oral histories. So I interviewed people, lots of them. And I just loved the stories that came out of this place. I mean, what I got from it, um, meeting the people, seeing the beautiful place, seeing the really interesting studios and the incredible art that came out of this place um, really was a learning experience to me. And so I tried very hard to be the eye, just see what's there and to write about it and to use what other people said, the quotes that I had, and I had a lot of them, not just what I wrote, but I used, reused some of the things that were written by others because they were so good that paraphrasing them didn't seem right. Paul Gold's limited edition book, illustrated with many photographs of the artists and their creations, is called Bend in the Wash, the Rancho Linda Vista Artist Community. What do the nation of Namibia the Canary Islands, and Mount Hopkins in the Santa Rita mountain range have in common. 
The answer is, they're each home to gigantic telescope arrays, ones specially designed to look for gamma-ray activity in outer space. Wiston Benbow is the director of VERITAS, which stands for the Very Energetic Radiation Imaging Telescope Array System. Gamma rays have been his astronomical passion since he played a vital role in a major discovery in 2006. Benbow will be giving a free lecture, part of an online series sponsored by the Fred Lawrence Whipple Observatory, on March 17th. He'll cover the 50-year history of this field of astronomy and look ahead to some of the exciting developments that are on the horizon. Technology has improved dramatically. I mean, he couldn't do what we do now in the 1960s. I mean, they've actually tried to do this, you know, for example, with you know, earlier generations of instrumentation, but without the computing, you really can't do this type of work in my field of gamma ray astronomy. And so even with the earliest computers, you could start to get moving, but it's really been advances in processing the images that are coming out of our telescopes. I mean, we take a billion pictures a second with our telescopes, and there's no human eye or ability to sift through piles of images that are going to help you with this. You really need machines, machines that can classify these images and look through it and, and do so rapidly with sort of machine learning or neural network or, you know, for lack of a better word, artificial intelligence type capabilities to process this stuff with really a, a minimum of human intervention. And obviously there's a lot of human intervention, but uh, you have to have a technology do a lot of work for you. Well, when people ask, what are you taking pictures of? What's the easy answer? Well, we're taking pictures of kind of the, the most extreme phenomena in the universe. So we're looking at um, black holes that are a billion times the mass of the sun. And these things are you know, sometimes located halfway across the universe away from us. You know, and it's not just the black holes. They have to have special things going on in these black holes where mass is falling in and somehow this ignites a jet of particles, uh, is relativist extreme, you know, and uh, it's a lot of mass and energy pointed right straight at the Earth. And we have to be lucky enough for this jet to be pointed right at us. And so, you know, we, we look at things like that. We look at uh, supernova remnants. These are the remains of a, an exploded massive star. This remnant, this, uh, the shell of the explosion, if you will, is expanding outwards. And when it collides with matter, you know, away from this, uh, this star, it interacts and it creates gamma rays. Uh, we look for dark matter or the decay of dark matter. And so we're really looking at the, the most extreme phenomena in the universe, uh, it's very, very energetic. Uh, many people, you know, in my business, like view uh, photons or light as having energy. And if you look at optical photons, that has an energy of what we could just simplify and say is one volt. And the stuff that we look at has the energy of a trillion volts. So we're looking at <laughs> things that are a trillion times more energetic than the stuff we see with our own eyes. And that's just on a photon level. And then to get you know, some sort of natural phenomenon that creates this stuff. It's the biggest, baddest particle accelerators in the universe. Why is it the gamma rays want to hang out at such wild cosmic parties? I mean, do you ever catch a gamma ray on vacation? <laughs> it's, such a, it's such a volatile and extremely um, active form of energy. So gamma rays are, by definition, the highest energy form of light. Um, and so in order to just generate gamma rays, you have to have something extreme going on. And then in order to generate enough of them that you can see these things from distances that are 
you know, almost incomprehensible for, I think, just about everybody, really, when you start dwelling on it. You know, it has to be something that creates the very most energetic things and at the largest scales possible. And the only way you can do that is the most extreme things out there. We really are looking at the, the very edge, if you will, of natural phenomena. Well, what about gamma rays here on Earth? I mean, we do have particle accelerators, right? And so like something like CERN, um, you know, that might generate, uh, you know, particles that are about one tera electron volt or one trillion volts, I may have mentioned earlier. But in order to get a photon to come off of a particle accelerator to this energy, you know, it has to interact with something. And so it's going to emit a photon that has less energy than that particle. And so in order to really generate light with you know, a trillion volts, you have to have a particle that's like a hundred trillion volts or even a thousand trillion volts. And so you can't even generate particles with that energy on Earth. We just can't do it as like mankind. So I think it gives you an idea of the scale of the thing. The biggest machine, you know, humankind makes, you can't do it, right? Yeah. And then, of course, you know, our biggest machine, you know, even if we wanted to focus all of that light that, you know, CERN makes and point it somewhere, you know, you're, you're not going to pick it up on, the, you know, on Mars, much less, you know, a planet, you know, that's millions of light years away. And the telescopes here in the Santa Rita Mountains, what's special about the array that the Whipple Observatory is connected with and that you have at your disposal as an investigator? Well, there's only three of these types of arrays in the entire world right now. And it's the third generation, if you will, of this type of technology. Um, the first one, first type of technology came online in 1968. And they struggled for about 20 years detecting absolutely nothing. You know, they were honing the technique into science. And then finally, as the computers came online and it got to be possible with electronics to get more pixels, a, you know, a 39-pixel camera was able to detect something in this field. And now, you know, we've moved beyond this where we've now got more than one telescope, but an array of telescopes. And now we have 500 pixels, which doesn't sound all that amazing, but we take a billion pictures a second. And so you take these telescopes, you stitch them all together, and you create the most powerful array in the world for doing this type of science. And what makes it particularly interesting is that even though these telescopes, which you think about as being quite large, they're about 40 feet across. And that sounds, you know, a lot of glass, you know, big camera, cameras, you know, about three feet across. It sounds really big. But what happens is because we don't detect the gamma rays directly, we detect the explosion created by the gamma ray in the upper atmosphere. Anywhere where light from this explosion shines on the ground, it, it illuminates, I don't know, something the size of a football field on the ground. And so as long as you place a telescope anywhere in this football field-sized pool, it's like creating a telescope the size of a football field. And so you can very cheaply make an extremely large telescope. And that's sort of been the hallmark of our field, is that we don't have to build you know, something that's 300 feet across to do, to do science, you know, with effectively a 300-foot telescope. Thanks to Wiston Benbow, director of Veritas, the Very Energetic Radiation Imaging Telescope Array System. His contribution to the 51st annual New Vistas in Astronomy public lecture series will live stream on Wednesday, March 17th at 10 a.m. You can find a link on the Arizona Spotlight page to the schedule of these free events offered by the Fred Whipple Observatory in conjunction with the Center for Astrophysics, Harvard University, and the Smithsonian. 
1995, Terry Gilliam, the American filmmaker and a founding member of Monty Python, made a movie called Twelve Monkeys. It was loaded with Gilliam's style and sensibility, and featured a cast led by Bruce Willis, Madeline Stowe, and Brad Pitt. What you may not know is that Twelve Monkeys' intricate two-and-a-half-hour story was really just embellishment on an audacious cinematic triumph that was made 33 years earlier that clocked in at just under 28 minutes. Proving that less can also be more, this short, black-and-white film possesses a rare emotional quality, one that has only grown more relevant across time. Here is film essayist Chris DeShiel with an appreciation. I find it ironic that one of the most influential works of cinema, French director Chris Marker's 1962 short film La Jetée, is on the face of it so uncinematic. But this is, in fact, one of the things about it that inspired other filmmakers. La Jetée, which in English means the pier, is composed almost entirely of stills. So instead of the motion we always expect from a film, a motion we assume when we use the word movie, we see here what is more like a film strip or a slideshow, in which a succession of still images is accompanied by a narrator telling a story. The jetty or pier of the title is actually a long observation platform at a large Paris airport. A boy, looking at the planes landing and taking off, notices a woman at the end of the platform, a woman whose face impresses itself deeply on his memory. He then witnesses a man getting killed as he runs toward the woman. Sometime after this event, as the narrator abruptly tells us, World War III destroys civilization as we know it. Survivors of the war, who call themselves the victors, live underground in Paris, while other survivors, the defeated, are kept as prisoners. A group of scientists uses prisoners as test cases in attempts to travel through time in order to bring knowledge and materials into the present that can help keep the human race from dying out. Our main character, now an adult and a prisoner, becomes the first experimental success because his obsession with the image of the woman at the airport gives the scientists an anchor on which to base their efforts. He actually travels into the past, meets the woman he saw as a boy, and they become lovers. This time, she is near him. He says something. She doesn't mind, she answers. They have no memories, no plans. Time builds itself painlessly around them. As landmarks, they have the very taste of this moment they live, and the scribbling on the walls. This science fiction scenario, which you have to admit sounds outlandish, is treated by Marker as purely subjective. The time traveler is tied to a table, his eyes covered, with electrodes attached to his body, and the scientists use drugs to induce his journey into the past. His experiences are not portrayed in terms of physical travel, but as a unique mental operation. All the while, the dryness of the film's style, the lack of drama as we usually think of it, makes the imagery more mysterious and more troubling. In La Jetée, the plot, as intriguing as it may be, is not what gave it such an impact. The dread and the grief associated with a possible nuclear holocaust was ever-present in the 1960s, and the way it's depicted in the film is more like a summing up of all modern wars than of any specific war. The series of still photos shows the shattered wreckage of cities and landscapes haunted by absence. 
The stills of the underground survivors, sometimes wearing strange and disturbing garb, has a weird alienating effect. There are occasional sounds, but mostly we just hear the voice of the narrator, along with a haunting musical score composed by Trevor Duncan. On the tenth day, images begin to ooze like confessions. A peacetime morning. A peacetime bedroom. A real bedroom. Real children. Real birds. Real cats. Real graves. The editing, the film's rhythmic montage, creates an eerie feeling as we are continually surprised by the progression of still photos, which seem to say so much more than the narrator cares to explain. When the traveler goes into the past, Marker's choice of imagery transforms time into a dreamlike sense of eternity, and all this in a film that runs only 28 minutes. It becomes evident that the subject is something more enigmatic than the end of the world, the film becomes a mystery about the most intimate relationship between two souls, the mystery of love. In his portrait of the fascination of a man with a woman, Marker was inspired by his favorite movie, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, a reference that becomes explicit in a few of the stills. Then, towards the end of the film, there is one very brief sequence, maybe three seconds long, that is not a still photo, but a motion picture. And that is the point towards which La Jetée has been aiming all along, a point more significant than all the other events and memories we've seen. The film, as it happens, is not meant to be a narrative told by means of a style. In fact, it's not really a story at all. It is a process of thought, a thought put into visual form. That is the thought we are left with, finally, and that is the paradox that resolves itself in La Jetée's celebrated ending. In the time we're going through right now, when a world pandemic coincides with tumultuous social change, where we find ourselves isolated yet together, and over which hangs the specter of climate catastrophe, my thoughts turned to this brilliant apocalyptic film made almost 60 years ago. The now in which Chris Marker's time travel thought experiment took place is the same now in which we live today, and the destiny of our world can still reveal itself to us through the memory of a beloved face. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Chris DeShiel. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the ACPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance by Yasmin Acosta. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.